Thank you to Philip for leading us uh, so far this evening and to our musicians and singers. Turn with me to that passage which we read a moment ago, Genesis 43, on pages 40, well, it's page 48 through to 49. We're actually going to look at 40, chapters 43, 44, and 45, so it'll be a, a pretty fast-moving uh, look at these three chapters this evening. Let's pray. Father God, last week in our services, we remembered your goodness to us in the harvest, uh, that we are always provided with food to eat, and that it's a gift of your goodness to us. Lord, we remember also Jesus' teaching uh, that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Lord, just as we would suffer if our, our bodies weren't nourished uh, by, by food, Lord, so our souls would shrink and wither within us if, if you didn't speak to us, if you didn't give us your word. So we pray this evening that you would come and uh, as we look at these, these ancient stories, you'd bring them right into our lives, right into today, right into this evening, and speak powerfully to us by your Spirit. Amen. The animals were suffering. Uh, they were little more than skin and bones by now. There just wasn't a feed to keep them. Uh, Joseph's, or sorry, Jacob's sons and their families, they were starving for a decent meal too. No matter how much they eked out the supplies that they'd brought back from Egypt, they were running dangerously low. Tables were empty, and so were their stomachs. And something had to be done soon. They needed to go back to Egypt. They'd been delayed for weeks, possibly even months. Judah tells us when he speaks in verse 10 that if they hadn't been delayed, they could have been to Egypt and back twice. They were delayed only for one reason. It was Jacob's reticence to let his youngest son go with his older brothers. Eventually, after months of hesitating, of endangering the life of his whole family, the old man relented. And he lets his sons go to the one place where they could be fed. As we trace this part of the, the Joseph narrative, we see here a story of our reluctance to come to God. We can be like Jacob. We're afraid. We stay away from God for as long as we possibly can. For as long as we possibly can, we try to go without God, to go it alone. And all the while we starve. All the while we keep our distance from Jesus, who alone is the bread of life. If this is a story of our reluctance to come to God, it's also a story of God's persistence in calling us to him. Joseph's dealing here with his brothers in these chapters. It serves as a glowing illustration of God's endless kindness and grace. 
In the second half of chapter 43, we see a a wonderful picture of God's hospitality. When Jacob's sons finally arrive in Egypt, they bring with them twice the silver that they would need to, to buy the grain. One half will buy the grain for this journey, and the other half, they're returning the silver that you'll remember was placed in their bags. They're nervous, understandably, as they present themselves before the the prime minister of Egypt once more. But as soon as they arrive there, their nerves give way to pure fear because they're called into the prime minister's house. He's surely going to punish them because of that silver that was in their sacks when they left Egypt the last time. He's going to accuse them of stealing from him And then he's going to imprison them or worse. In their desperation, they turn to the steward who's looking after them. It's not what it looks like. They explain to him, we didn't steal your master's money. Look, we're returning it. It's all right. The steward says, don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given your treasure in your sacks. I received your silver. And then he brought Simeon out to them. It's not the last time that the brothers will be surprised by kindness that day. To their amazement, they're welcomed into the home of this Egyptian aristocrat. And when he comes home from work, he he talks to them almost as if he, he knows them. How's your father? Your father you told me about. Is he still living? Is this your younger brother, the one you told me about? He seems to be genuinely interested in them. As soon as he hears that their father is well and that this is indeed their younger brother, a strange thing happens. He bursts from the room. Uh, They imagine that being the, the high and mighty man that he is, that he has some important business of the empire to deal with. But that's not his reason for leaving the room. The narrator tells us in verse 30 that Joseph was deeply moved at the sight of his brother. He hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and wept there. Joseph loves his brothers deeply and dearly, and they have no idea of it. He's prepared an incredible feast for them, and probably hard to picture this because if you see it from the, the point of view of these, uh, these, these Israelite travelers, they have been starving for months, living on the bare minimum, and now they're being presented with the best food that Egypt has to offer. And as, the, as this feast unfolds, strange things start to happen. They couldn't help but notice that the, the place cards that told them where to sit were in exactly the right order by order of their birth. They couldn't help to notice, too, that when the portions were served, Benjamin, the youngest, got five times what the rest of them got. Something strange was going on here, something that they couldn't quite understand. But it was a wonderful feast for all of them. We're told in the last line of the chapter that they feasted and drank freely with Joseph. It's a lovely picture. There are few pictures probably that are are more, more evocative 
to the, the human imagination than, than people enjoying good hospitality, people gathering to share a meal, a feast. And yet there's something missing here, isn't there? Here are Jacob's 11 sons. They're enjoying fabulous hospitality, but they don't know who the host is. They know about him, of course. Uh, They've had some dealings with him by now. They know that he's the second most powerful man in Egypt. But they've no idea who he really is. They've no idea either of his deep and his great love for them. Isn't it a picture of so many in the world who don't yet know Jesus Christ? who don't yet have a saving faith in Jesus, they too enjoy the goodness of what God offers them. Whenever we thought last Sunday morning about the harvest and gave thanks to God, that's something that everyone in the world benefits from. All people enjoy these gifts of God's goodness. Many people come a little bit closer and they come into into God's house and among the people of his family. They enjoy the company of the people here and the hospitality that they find here. They might even sit at his table. Take the bread. Take the wine. But the truth is that they still don't know him. They're not aware. And they haven't been moved by the love that he has for them. They have no grasp of the longing in his heart to be reconciled to them. Friends, I think that if we could see it, if we could see for even a moment, if we could have even a glimpse of the love that God has for us, we'd be changed forever and entirely. When we last looked at the Joseph narrative together three weeks ago, we noticed in chapter 42 that when Joseph meets his brothers, he begins to test them. He wants to see what kind of men they've become. The first test, you'll remember, was the placing of the silver in their bags. And we've already discovered in chapter uh, 43 here the outcome of that first test. They didn't keep the silver which they they might have been inclined to do, nor were they afraid when push came to shove to make that dangerous return journey to Egypt with the silver in their possession. They acted with integrity and with courage, so they passed Joseph's first test. I see in the banquet actually a second and maybe a lower key and a subtle test Whenever he gives the the feast to his brothers, he gives Benjamin, the youngest brother, five times as much as he gives any of the brothers. And and by the way, that wasn't just food he was giving them. It wasn't just that he recognized that Benjamin had a a bigger appetite than the others and thought, I'll reflect that. The giving of food in a context like that was a giving of honor. He was reversing the roles in this family. He was making the last first. How did they respond to that? Did they throw the head up? Did they bicker? Did they say, no, there's a terrible mistake? Reuben's the oldest. 
No. Without any hint of a fuss at all, they freely enjoyed Joseph's hospitality. These brothers have passed their second test. But we read here in chapter 44 about Joseph's third test. And because we didn't read it earlier, I'd ask you to skim. Keep your eye on it as I try and point you to the major turns in the plot development. After the strange feast in the palace of the prime minister, the brothers load up their donkeys and they set off for home. But unknown to them, Joseph has asked one of them, one of his men, to plant a silver cup in Benjamin's bag. Then he sent after them to catch the thief red-handed. I sort of have a picture of, of what this might have felt like from the brothers. I don't know how you respond when you're driving in your car you look in the rear view mirror and you see the police. I don't know what it says about me, but I always feel bad. Um, even when I don't think I've done anything wrong. I, I'm sure the brothers looking over the shoulder, seeing uh, Egyptian officials behind them. You know, they knew they hadn't done anything wrong, but I, I'm sure they too felt uneasy. Well, the Egyptian official caught up with them. He pulled them over. He accused them of the theft. They denied it. But during the ensuing search, a cup, a silver cup belonging to the prime minister is found in Benjamin's bag. What a catastrophe. You see, they had agreed with the Egyptian official that the person who had stolen the cup would remain in Egypt as the prime minister's slave. We read in verse 13, they tore their clothes. They're devastated. Because if you remember all that stuff that we read, what is the one thing that they don't want to happen on this trip? They don't want anything to happen to Benjamin, the youngest, their father's beloved. How will Joseph's brothers respond to this second test? Are they still the same men as before, or have they been changed? Well, we see the dramatic reversal in their character here in the latter half of this chapter. When Joseph accuses them of theft, they're speechless. They would love to be able to prove their innocence, but they know they can't. And of one accord, they all agree that they'll stay as slaves. They'll all stay together. But Joseph, he... He's not going to let them off the hook. He zooms in on the one pressure point in all of this. He says, only the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you can go back to your father in peace. It's Benjamin he wants. How are they going to treat their youngest brother? And Judah gives a wonderful reply here. Twenty or so years ago, these brothers had sold one of their younger brothers to foreign slave traders. They lied to their father, and they told him that his favorite son had been killed in an unfortunate accident. They clearly didn't care about their brother or about their father's feelings one little bit. But look at them now. In verse 30, Judah says, If the boy's not with us, when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with this boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. 
Your servants will bring gray hair of our father down to the grave in sorrow. It'll break our dad's heart. And Judah's speech, it turns out, isn't all hot air either. He offers to stay in Egypt himself in Benjamin's place. Joseph's brothers have passed the third and the final test. They are different men. Those who sold a younger brother 20 years ago now rally to protect this one. Those who broke their father's heart 20 years ago are full of concern and love for the old man. They've changed utterly and entirely. I wonder, friends, whether we make it far, far too little a thing to take the name of Christ and to call ourselves a Christian. People take the name of Christ, they say that they're saved, but there's absolutely no discernible difference in their lives before and after. They live on exactly as they did before they knew Christ. They live on exactly as their peers around them who don't claim to know Christ. They have not, like Joseph's brothers, been changed utterly and entirely. That's what Jesus called for, isn't it? When he preached, he called people to repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. He called them to change. He called them to leave that life behind. That life that they were living without him. And to begin to live this life. A new life. Where he is not only their savior. But their Lord. Not so long ago I had the opportunity to talk this through. With one of our members. They told me of someone known to them, a person who understood that they needed to have their sins forgiven and they wanted to have their sins forgiven. They wanted to have the assurance that they'd one day be in heaven under God's blessing rather than in hell under God's judgment. So far, so good. But there was a problem. This person did not want to submit to the Lordship of Christ We were thinking together whether a person like this could experience God's salvation. What do you think? A person who recognizes that they're a sinner, wants to have their sins forgiven, uh, wants the assurance of their salvation and eternal life in God with heaven, but doesn't want to say that Jesus is Lord and commit their lives to following him. Can such a person be saved? As we thought about it together for a while, the answer came clearly to us. The answer is no, absolutely not. How can a person claim to be confessing their sins when all the while they cling to the fundamental sin? What is the fundamental sin? It's to deny the lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives. To say that Jesus, who is our creator and our master, has no role 
as master in our lives. Friends, that's our greatest sin. As soon as we repent of this, everything else falls into place. We must repent of living without Jesus as our Lord and Master. I think it's then, folks, that the change begins. Not overnight, but it begins. As we say to ourselves that from this day on, Jesus Christ is my master. I give every day and every hour to learning from him and to being like him as his spirit works in me. That's when the change comes. Friends, that's the change that we need to see in our lives. That's the change I believe that happened here in the lives of Joseph's brothers. Under God, they're changed utterly and entirely and made different than they were before. We said at the outset of this evening's sermon that it was a story of our reluctance to come to God. Like Jacob and like his sons, we're slow to come to the one who loves us. We're slow to come to the one who can save us. But when we come now to chapter 45, we get a wonderful picture of the grace of God. As we read about Joseph's reconciliation with his brothers, we can't help but see the parallels with the wonderful moment when a sinner is reconciled with the Savior. Once he's finished testing his brothers, once he's seen for himself how they've changed, Joseph's overwhelmed by a desire to make himself known to them. He sends everyone else from the room. And through his weeping and his tears, he tells his brothers, I am Joseph. He asks again about his father, but but his brothers can't even answer him because they're terrified. They're terrified in the presence of this powerful man whom they have wronged so terribly. I am Joseph. Finally, he reveals himself to them and everything changes forever. I, I think it's a, there's a lovely foreshadowing here of a, of a significant New Testament moment. That moment centuries later when on a road into Damascus, a man called Saul of Tarsus falls to the ground under a blinding light. He hears a voice from heaven and he asks, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. And in that moment, everything changes for Saul forever. Isn't it true that this is where real conversion begins? It's when finally we see Jesus for who he is. When he reveals himself to us, we see our beloved creator. We see the Savior who died on the cross for us. We see the one who longs to give us his spirit and and to welcome us into perfect communion with him. We finally see Jesus. brothers were terrified. Picture it. The brother whom they had sold into slavery 
the second most powerful man in the world. In a regime that would have taken human life just like that. And they stand in front of him. And he says, I am Joseph. They're terrified. They remember how they had harmed him all those years ago. They, they thought for sure that he would take his revenge and punish them. And it's the same for Saul of Tarsus. Fresh from the stoning of Stephen, one of Jesus' disciples, on his way into the city to, to imprison followers of Jesus in that place, he's on his face and he's before Jesus. He must have feared for his life. Friends, actually it's not uncommon for those who finally see Jesus in that moment to be overwhelmed with fear. Suddenly we see and remember and sense how terribly we've wronged him. We sense how much our sin has cost him. We realize how completely unworthy we are of his acceptance and his love. We're like Peter. We say, get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. And what does our Savior say to those who come to him? Humble begging for mercy. He says what Joseph said to his brothers. He says, come close to me. Come close. He embraces us. He forgives us. He lets bygones be bygones and he takes our sin as far as the east is from the west. It's an awesome, awesome mercy, this mercy of God. It's wonderful what Joseph says to his brothers in chapter 45. You should read it sometime. It's, it's one of the warmest chapters in the whole of the Bible. He says to them, don't be distressed. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. There's a wonderful recognition here on Joseph's part that, that God's been in it all. When his brothers kidnapped him and sold him into slavery, God was somehow directing their ways. When Joseph had to serve Potiphar and then languish for years in an Egyptian prison, he was in exactly the place where God wanted him to be. All of it was leading to this time and this place where he could act to save his family, the covenant people of God, and bring salvation to, to thousands, possibly millions. I wonder, do we share that same conviction that God is directing our paths, that he's shaping our lives, I wonder, do we believe it that our lives are in God's hands? Do we believe it even when it seems like we're in a dead-end job? Do we believe it when we feel like we're standing still or going backwards in our lives? 
do we have some sense that God is in this? That his sovereignty never fails? Are we like Joseph on the lookout for the ways in which God is going to work his salvation? Friends, God is at work in your life and in mine. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I think I can say that with confidence tonight, no matter how much it sounds like a lie. No matter how much it sounds like it's not true. God is at work. He goes before you. He's shaping your life. It's a staggering and a humbling thought. There are some people here this evening, and maybe you're one of them, who think they're too bad for God. Everything you've heard this evening, everything that you've ever heard about the grace of God and His mercy and His forgiveness, it washes off you like water off a duck's back because you know what you're really like. When you hear the preacher, you say to yourself, well, that's all right for everyone else, but not for me. God will never have anything to do with me because he knows, he knows the stuff that I've managed to keep hidden from everyone else. He knows what I'm really like. His grace doesn't extend that far. Not to the likes of me. Look for a moment at verses 14 and 15. We read that Joseph threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept, and Benjamin embraced him weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Think for a moment of Reuben, the oldest brother, the one who could have protected Joseph all those years ago but didn't do it. Joseph embraced him. What about Simeon and Levi? In their youth, these two had murdered an entire community at Shechem. Their thugs, were they the ones who had planned that Joseph would be killed? Joseph embraced them. And Judah, it was his idea to sell Joseph into slavery. There was an embrace for Judah. Was it Issachar? who stripped him of his beautiful robe? Did Zebulun play his part in in throwing him into the pit? An embrace for them both. Was it Gad and Asher who took the 20 pieces of silver from the Ishmaelite traders? Did Dan and Naphtali slaughter the goat and dip his robe in it so that they could tell a terrible lie to his father Jacob? They too were loved and accepted, and embraced. Friends, Paul could have been speaking for each and every one of us in his first letter to Timothy when he said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I am the worst. Do you see the logic? Even the worst of sinners receives the the forgiving embrace of God. 
No one, no one is beyond this, this love and mercy of God. I wonder have you seen it for the first time this evening? As we've looked at this ancient story of Joseph, have you seen the, the incredibly up-to-date ministry of Jesus Christ? Though we're reluctant to come to him patiently, he waits for us. He longs to show himself to us. He longs to, to meet you and to say, I am Jesus. He longs to forgive you and embrace you and welcome you into the family of God. I wonder, is there someone here this evening experiencing for the first time the embrace of God. Let us pray.